grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe I've given a sermon before with the preface I'm about to offer, but today's message includes talk about sexual assault. I want to mention this ahead of time uh, for the sake of anyone here for whom this kind of word may trigger feelings of anxiety and or grief. I don't want anyone to feel ambushed today by this difficult text. And so now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together here be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We've been walking with David for a little over a month now. David has been telling us who we are. He, he is a mirror for us. We look at him, we see ourselves. Mostly, we see ourselves at our best. Looking at David, we've seen ourselves anointed with the love and the calling of God. We've seen the capacity in us to stand up to oppressors like David with Goliath. We've seen how we can repay evil with good, as David did with Saul. And we've seen how to live with abandon and to lose ourselves in love, like David who danced for God. But today the story says, look again, and we don't want to look. The mirror tells us more than we want to know. What hurts most is, is who David is. This is David, faithful David, who loves God dearly, who's been favored with every conceivable blessing. So why him? Why does the one who has every gift and shows so much promise turn so greedy and so cruel? Well, because this also is who we are. This is our killing contradiction. Like David, we who are rich in love and blessed beyond words with love and life, we lean into evil. We fall into darkness, all of us. Even people after God's own heart are sinful. And especially people after God's own heart know that. So listen to the story. David is now about 50 years old, maybe a little older He's been on the throne approximately 20 years. David's army is off fighting, but for reasons unexplained in this text, he has stayed at home. Perhaps now that he is established as king, he doesn't feel the need to prove himself in battle. We don't know. But late one afternoon, in the cool of the day, he walks on the roof of his palace overlooking the city and down below sees a woman bathing. The writer points out to us, makes sure we know that the woman is very beautiful. David watches her. He sends a servant to find out her name. The servant leaves, and now David has time. Time to listen to a wiser voice inside instead of the one he's listening to now. Time to reconsider the path he's beginning to start down, but he doesn't. The servant comes back. Her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And again, David has the opportunity to evaluate what he has just heard. Don't do it, David. Something in us wants to, to, to say to him. But David says, bring her. 
And the text says that when Bathsheba was brought to the palace, David, quote, took her, which is to say he had sex with her, and then she returned home. It's not long before a message comes to David, I'm pregnant, consequences, our actions bear consequences. David's actions are creating a chain of events from which neither he nor his family will be able to escape. And upon receiving Bathsheba's news, David's strategic mind kicks into gear. First, he tries a cover-up. He calls for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who is out fighting for the king. David tries several times to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, let him believe he has fathered the child. Only Uriah doesn't cooperate. He's a man of integrity who refuses to enjoy the pleasures of home while his buddies are out on the battlefield. As someone has observed, Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. Finally, David sends Uriah back to the fight. With a sealed message to the commander, put Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he will be killed. And so Uriah the Hittite is killed in battle. And when David gets the word, he sends a message back to the general. And this is what he says, don't let this matter trouble you. The sword devours this one today, that one tomorrow. If we're not prepared to receive this kind of news, this, to hear about this kind of behavior from David, we are certainly not alone. In fact, renderings and interpretations of this text have been almost exclusively misogynistic. Artists and, and interpreters over the centuries have turned Bathsheba into a painted-up vixen who seduces a righteous king by bathing in plain sight, while in truth... It's likely that she was observing a required ritual washing at the end of her monthly period. And likely that she wasn't even naked. In Bathsheba's time and culture, if she were in public view, she would have washed without disrobing. This particular story, as you may know, is receiving fresh scrutiny these days as women and men are speaking out with renewed resolve against sexual violence. Just days ago, Rachel Den Hollander, speaking at a conference hosted by the Southern Baptist Convention, referred to this text. Den Hollander was the star witness in the trial of serial abuser and former USA gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser. And as a Baptist Christian, she was advising those at the conference to use care when interpreting Bible stories like this one with David and Bathsheba. David did not fornicate, she said to the group. David raped. It's important we get that right. And the response on social media, largely from evangelical Christians, was swift and condemning of her. But conservative Christians aren't the only ones feeling a need to defend David and implicate Bathsheba. Not so long ago, 
Uh, during a debate on some matter in the Israeli parliament, Shimon Peres, the former uh, foreign minister then, was moved to say that he disapproved of some of the practices of King David, particularly of his conquest of other people and his seduction of a married woman, Bathsheba, whose husband Uriah David had sent to his death. New York Times reported that outraged Orthodox rabbis screamed at the foreign minister to shut up. Another shouted, you will not give out grades to King David. And a third man fell into such a state of apoplexy he had to be treated for hypertension in the parliamentary uh, infirmary. And a motion was introduced condemning the government for having besmirched the, quote, sweet psalmist of Israel. But even the biblical writers themselves appear to be invested in keeping David's reputation unscathed. The writer of Chronicles in the Old Testament completely omits the story of Bathsheba and Uriah. The writer of 1 Kings mentions it, but just barely. In 1 Kings 15, David's greatness is on display with only a brief mention of the, quote, recent unpleasantness. It reads... David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that God had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Even here, no mention of Bathsheba, only her husband, Uriah. Only the writer of the books of Samuel is willing to be brutally honest about the beloved King David. And so after the death of Uriah, as we are told, Bathsheba mourns her husband. And after a time, David brings her to his house and he takes her as his wife and she gives birth to a son. And it really does appear as though David has gotten away with the whole terrible business. But then the story takes a turn with these words. The thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Enter the prophet Nathan, who has a word for David. You see, after David sent for Bathsheba, sent for Uriah to come home from the front, sent the order to General Joab to have Uriah killed, chapter 12 opens with these words. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now the action belongs to God, and, and God now does all of the talking through his prophet, Nathan. And what God does is have Nathan tell David a story. Nathan says, your majesty, there is a rich man in your kingdom who has flocks and flocks of sheep and every comfort in life. And the rich man has a neighbor who is so poor he has barely anything at all, really just one little lamb. And he has loved that lamb like a member of his own family, like a daughter he never had. He's fed that lamb from his own table, let her drink from his own cup. She sleeps in his arms. But one day, O king, the rich man had a visitor and needed to prepare a meal for his guest. And he didn't want to provide any one of his 1,000 sheep so he took his neighbor's lamb, took it, and killed it, and served it for supper. Now tell me, King David, shepherd of God's people, king of all Israel, what should be done with this rich man? David goes ballistic. 
the injustice, the, the, the cruelty of this man. He should die for his sin. I'll make him pay. And what follows is one of the most important moments of David's life. Nathan does not blink as he looks David in the eye and says, you are the man. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from Saul. I've given you everything. And if that weren't enough, I gladly would have given you more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord? You have killed a man, taken his wife. And as a result of this, violence will never leave your house. What you did, you did in secret. But the violence coming to you will be for all of Israel to see. And so now David is holding his own death sentence in his hand. And when he hears this judgment and looks into the mirror Nathan is holding up, it all comes home to him and he cries, I have sinned against the Lord. It's important, I think, to understand that Nathan did not come to condemn David. That would have been easy enough to do given the circumstances. But God came to David that day. As God comes to us too with something more profound in mind than condemnation. God comes to change our lives. To help David and us see what we've done so that our conscience is revived and our sense of justice is restored. Psalm 51, which we heard both read and sung this morning, is said to be David's response to this news from Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. This is why David, even in his sin, is called a person after God's own heart, because he gives to God his ruined, shattered self and gives God the chance to heal what is broken. Barbara Brown Taylor asks, was David a good man or a bad man? And then she says, I think he was both, as most of us are. And if we remember him as a hero, she says, I hope it's not because of Goliath or the Psalms or the war stories. I hope it's because of this moment with Nathan when he saw who he was and said so, so that God could say to him, come home. And so, over this shattered, guilty man are spoken these words. The Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Things are never the same again after Bathsheba and Uriah. There will be unimaginable pain ahead for David. But much more, there will be the grace and the love of God that does not let go and the peace of God beyond all understanding. Not all the guilty find it because not all have the courage to own their guilt. And so it splits their hearts in two. Many of you know the name of Clarence Jordan, who founded the Koinonia Farms down in Americus, Georgia in 1942. The farm was the birthplace of Habitat for Humanity, which is alive and well today. And from the beginning, Koinonia was racially inclusive, and this did not go over well with most people in those days. And because of that decision, Clarence Jordan and Florence, his wife, were voted out of membership 
at their Baptist church there in Americus. And the week after it happened, one of the deacons who had voted against them came out to the farm to see Clarence. And he said, Clarence, I've been unable to sleep ever since the church voted you out. Why is that, said Clarence. Well, every time I go to sleep, the man said, I hear the sound of singing. Well, what singing do you hear? I hear people singing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And I was there, Clarence. I was there when we voted you out of my church. Clarence, I've come to ask for your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And Clarence said, yes, I I forgive you. Would you also pray for me, Clarence? Would you ask Jesus to forgive me too? No, I, I can't do that, said Clarence. When you wanted my forgiveness, you came to me and asked direct. If you want Jesus to forgive you, you need to ask him yourself. But I tell you what I'll do. I can't go for you to the Lord, but I can go with you to the Lord. And the two men walked out into the backyard under a sprawling pecan tree, and they knelt on the ground together, and they prayed. And later, Clarence told Florence, I have never seen a grown man cry so before. Owning our guilt may feel as painful to us as death. And David shows us that every confession coming from a heart split in two is in fact the beginning of life. You and I have to do it for ourselves. No one can do it for us. But someone can do it with us, especially the one we call Son of David, who came not to condemn, but to restore. That same Christ is beside us even now to help us ask for a new spirit and to help us get up again and live as people after God's own heart. And you know what, brothers and sisters? That sounds like awfully good news to me. And so, gracious, forgiving God, create in us a clean heart. And if our hearts aren't broken yet, break them now for our own sakes and for yours. And breathe your new spirit on us so that we might get up and go out to live and serve in ways that honor you and make your heart glad. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.